So we have a guest teacher this week. His name is Seth Trout. I'm super excited. He's the teaching pastor um, at Gateway Redemption, also leads their staff. And uh, he is going to teach on do not commit adultery. Seth, let's give a hand for Seth. Grab my table real quick. What a guest destroying the house. Don't don't tell Landon how that broke. I won't get asked back. Well, sorry about that. Uh, a little change of the temperature there. So I'm teaching on uh, the shortest text I've ever been asked to teach on in my life. I've been preaching and teaching now 12 years, and Landon told me to preach on uh, don't commit adultery. Uh, so there's the sermon. Don't do it. <laughs> Close in prayer. Thank you. You know what? I've always wanted to look tall, so now I got this good table. I'm way bigger than Landon for sure. Uh, don't commit adultery. So here's, here's the verse. In English, it's five words. You shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew, it's two words. Lo tinaf, no adultery. Uh, so it's literally the shortest text I've ever been asked to preach on in my life. And I was thinking, how am I going to come up with 35 minutes of stuff to say? Uh, a text that basically is very clear. If you're going, what do you mean? Then you're probably doing it. <laughs> what exactly? What are the details on the don't commit adultery? You know, uh, how far is too far? What is, what's too much? Like, give me the, what's the fine print? There's no fine print. It's very clear. Don't commit adultery. So here's, uh, so that's, how am I going to come up with 30 minutes stuff to say about that? Well, first you break a table, waste five minutes, and then you, uh, uh, you go for it. But here's, here's a difficult thing about adultery is everybody knows it's wrong, Christian and non-Christian, and yet people do it. Right? There are some things that people do that they're like, oh, I don't think that's wrong, I actually think that's fine. Uh, I'm, I, like you, there's like rationalization, justification, explanation, uh, but yet people find themselves there. You know, if you interview someone, and you know, maybe a newlywed, maybe six months into marriage, and you go like, what is your hope and dream for your marriage? Nobody will say, I would like to have two to three good years um, and then be, get lost in my work and grow distant over time from my spouse as, as they parent and um, I emotionally get fried and then about 12 to 13 years in, I would like to uh, train wreck my whole household. But people don't plan on that. Nobody, when they're writing the script for their life, goes, here's what I want to happen. But yet, it happens. Why is that the case? Not only that, but why is it so wrong? This is, there's very few things in the Bible that basically... Um, Christian and non-Christian will generally agree on, but why is it so wrong? So um, there are certain commandments you see in Scripture where uh, the Bible, or exhortations in Scripture, where the Bible goes against or contradicts like what the, the neighboring communities believe or taught, right? So like the biblical doctrine of the image of God, that all people without exception, man and woman, property owner, not property owner, they're all made with dignity and value and worthy of respect and admiration, compared to the neighboring communities which taught that people were valuable and had rights if they were men and owned property. 
Like you can see the contrast between the biblical ideal and like the secular worldly ideal. And you go, wow, look at this. Look how the Bible's correcting this like dehumanizing secular thought or even like secular like pagan thought. And they, but, but here, uh, if you went and read all the law codes of the ancient Near Eastern neighbors of Israel, the Canaanites, uh, the, the Egyptians, uh, the, the, these various like law codes, they all had prohibitions against adultery. Nobody was going, adultery is a good thing. Uh, we should basically let it, like there's, there's, is with, there are details to it and exception, like, but it's not a, a unique to the church teaching that you should honor your commitments to your spouse. But yet it's in here, right? Why is it in here? Because uh, it's not really highlighting a contrast, but it is getting to the, the baseline of it. And so here's what um, I, I, I want to try to help us see uh, this morning as we're talking through this text is, is one, the why it's everywhere. Uh, and then also two, uh, why it's so destructive and harmful. And then three, why it's uniquely destructive and harmful when we consider it as Christians. Like why is adultery for Christians even that much more difficult and destructive. So that's what I hope to show us. And so the first thing, why is it so destructive? Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's common in the whole world that a treachery against a spouse, betrayal against a spouse causes problems. Um, but it's interesting here that we tend to think of adultery as preeminently or exclusively a sin against your spouse, right? You are betraying the value made to your spouse. And I'm saying that is true. That is part of why it's so destructive. But especially in ancient cultures and biblically speaking, it's also seen as as much of a sin against society as it is a sin against your spouse, because what happens is if everyone's committing adultery and everyone's sleeping around, uh, what you happens is you have these children who don't know who their parents are. You have this social order that is frayed and you have this creating this normalized psychological crisis in which young men and young women don't know who their father is. They tend to know who their mother is because that's biologically a little more clear, right? There's a moment where that's obvious. But they, it's very easy to not know who your father is. This is why even now you watch like Maori or some of that trash daytime television. It's like, we did a paternity test and the father is. You know, and it's like, you're finding this thing out that children will be separated from knowledge of who their parents is. I have a really good friend who is an extremely healthy person, theologically solid, has done counseling, loves his wife, has multiple kids, and on his father's deathbed, his father tells him, you're not actually my son. He's in his mid-40s, checks all the boxes on emotionally healthy, is resilient, connected, and he is, it's been six, eight, nine months now, and it is traumatizing, like the having to re-narrate myself. Where did I come from? He knows the Father in heaven loves him. He knows that his earthly identity is superseded by his heavenly identity. He knows this, and he is a grown, healthy, solid, connected, knows where to get help man, and it is still impossibly difficult for him to wrap his mind and, and grab onto that, and much less for little children with no prefrontal cortex, trying to figure out who they are, raising, and like this, we are certainly steps away from the created norm that God designed, that children have a right to know their mothers and their fathers. And when fathers and mothers sin, it actually severs a right away from the child that creates wounds that requires tremendous work to repair. 
A lot of you in this room, I am certain, have had to do tons of work to begin to repair those wounds, understanding that there's no such thing as finally getting over it. There's just a, a lagging difficulty in your life. Like family systems, connection to these things, like there's this difficult, and here's the deal is God designed that to be painful on purpose. That's one of the difficulties we face is we have this God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's relational, who designs us to be relationally affected and connected people. And so relation, when relationships are going well, we get to learn about God and relationships go poorly. It creates wounds that requires tremendous healing. That we're supposed to be able to see our parents and see in them glimmers of the image of God and learn about God by looking at our parents. But so often there's isolation or separation or sin from our parents and most of our life we end up undoing the unconscious things we've learned about God from our parents. So when it's going well, what a blessing. When it's going poorly, what a curse. And so thou shalt not commit adultery is not just about honoring your spouse, but it's also about giving children what they deserve. Here's one of the things about adultery is especially in our modern culture, there's like this idea that if I were to sexually repress myself or sexually say no to a desire, that would be some tremendous suffering. But the temptation to commit adultery or the desire to commit adultery or the reality of adultery is, here's what it's actually deciding, is who suffers. Who's gonna bear in themselves the weight of the healing and the responsibility? Will I absorb into myself my disordered desire and suffer by saying no to my desires and bear in myself the responsibility to heal from my disordered desires or will I push that desire onto my wife and children? Say, you suffer, not me. You have to do the work to heal, not me. That there's a reality in this thou shalt not commit adultery thing that is saying you, the adult, you be the one to have to deal with the difficulty by saying no to disordered desires and by doing the work to heal from disordered desires. This is our responsibility as adults. And most of the time, like marital treachery, the difficulty of being raised in a broken household is the function or the result of the adulterous person choosing, you suffer, not me. And I realize even saying no to adultery and calling that a form of suffering is a little way of minimizing that uh, because it's not actually suffering, it's just perceived suffering. But there is difficulty in saying no to desire, whether it's disordered or ordered. We gotta grasp that, understand that, and live with that. That adultery is an assault on the created order, um, both as it relates to marriage and as it relates to children. That children have this right to grow up in a, in a connected, warm, loving household, and parents all the time destroy that right in the name of sexual personal fulfillment. We gotta understand, and I hope that a lot of you in this room understand that a lot of the difficulty that you face in your life is a result of other people's sin. This is part of the story of the book of Exodus, right? That, that God saves his people, not necessarily from even their sin, but from the suffering caused by other people's sin. Yes, Jesus dies on the cross to save us from our sin, but he's also powerfully working in us and among us to save us from the suffering caused by other people's sin. And so often, adultery is just passing on difficulty to someone else and calling that, causing them to have to do a bunch of healing. And so a lot of you have more to overcome than other people. And that's not fair. 
But I want you to hear, it also is your responsibility to overcome, even though it's not fair that you have to overcome it. Because we talk a lot about, uh, I have some friends who don't drink alcohol because it's like addiction runs in my family. And I just want you all to know that just like addiction runs in families, adultery runs in families. That what's modeled for us, we so badly in our gut want to imitate and normalize. No matter how much we rationally know it's wrong, our gut, like the gravitational pull towards being like what we've seen and experienced, is really tremendously strong. This is one of the reasons why like, consumption of media is so powerful and difficult. It's because it normalizes behaviors that we see as reprehensible and becomes less and less egregious and less and less obviously bad because it's layers and it's complicated. So thou shalt not commit adultery. And here's one of the things, too, that I think we um, tend to misunderstand as Christians is just how exactly vulnerable we are. We think because we know something is wrong, we therefore won't do what is wrong. Uh, is that true for basic low-level sins? Like, and I mean, like, you know, basically, you know, like, don't lie, don't steal, but everyone cheats on their taxes, you know, it's a form of stealing. Don't lie, well, it's a white lie. Don't cuss, well, that's not one of those cuss words, you know. Um, if that's not true for low-level sins, why would that be true for big sins? I've had multiple of, like, my mentor, pastor friends disqualify themselves from ministry, some from things like adultery. I've heard them teach this lesson, don't commit adultery. They know what the Bible says, don't commit adultery. They understand the temptation. And so one of them disqualified himself and was going through a really hard time. This was when I was 22 years old and I was even more, less sensitive than I am now. And I remember taking him to lunch, hey, can we go to lunch to talk about how you're doing and how you got to where you are? And he's, he's 35 at the time and I took him out to lunch. And I said, don't take this the wrong way, but how do I not become you? And I've heard all these stories. You know, I've been pastors, and it's like, of all the people who, like you, but they do it. Like everybody else, same statistics. Same statistics on pornography. Same statistics on adultery. Same statistics on stealing. Same statistics on abandoning the faith. But like, there's like this weird, like, uh, so how did I not become you? Because uh, people have told me that I remind you of them and that was a compliment until a month ago and now it's an insult. And here's what he said, and this is, I want us to see this. He said, the fact that you think you might become like me means that you're already ahead of me because I thought I would never do that. I thought that's the type of thing other people would do. That's the type of thing people less emotionally healthy than me would do. That's the type of thing people with traumatic backgrounds would do. That's the type of thing that unhappy people, like there's, there's a reason that other people do that. I don't know, like, so I would not do that. And then you drift. And so here's, this is a warning against adultery in Proverbs 7. And again, this is probably Solomon writing to his son. Guess what? Everyone knows adultery is wrong. Nobody's like, wait a minute. You should honor your vows and let your guests... You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. This is the warning about it. So this is in Proverbs 7. I'm going to start at verse 6 and on. This is talking about a wise man looking out the window. He says, at the window of my house, I've looked out through the lattice. I've seen among the simple. I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, 
taking the road towards her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. Here you have this young man going, I'm not gonna fall into temptation. I can walk down this um, obvious path and stay out of the fray. I can, I can teeter on the edge of doing it and not do it. I can kind of experience the thrill of temptation, but it's not, it's not gonna happen to me. And he goes, this guy's an idiot. That's another way of translating fool, idiot. Young man lacking sense. My translation is idiot. You know, it's, you're so, it, the dumbest thing you could be is to believe that you're above sinning dramatically. Like, that's so ridiculous. Have you read the Bible? Have you read about the people that knew God who saw, like, have you, and then what happens? Like, you are so stupid if you think this could not happen to you. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, every corner she lies and wait. Now, this is not a specific woman. This is about the woman, uh, the woman folly. This is adultery and the various forms. Folly is everywhere, always looking to try to get people to fall. She seizes him and kisses him with bold face. She says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I paid my vows. I've come here to meet you, meaning I would like to do something with you and I've already paid the price for the sin. This is presuming on God's grace. This is going, hey, Jesus died for that. What's the big deal? Isn't God gracious? Then why are you saying no? What's the problem? Like, give in. The, the sin's already paid for. Might as well, t- like, he already paid for it. Might as well cash the check. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloe, cinnamon. I'm come, let us take our fill of love to morning. Let us delight in ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. So, lie number one. Uh, Presuming on God's grace, lie number two, we will not get caught because my husband is out of town. He took a big bag of money. He won't come home for a long time. Uh, with seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her like an ox goes to the slaughter. He does not know it will cost him his life. So it's the last lie. Is This won't cost me much. It'll cost me some sleep and some time, but I'll go back to my life right after this. It will cost him his life. So here's one thing, Restoration Church, that my hope you walk away from this today, understanding this, you could do it. You might. You are vulnerable. We must see ourselves as seducible. We must see ourselves as vulnerable. We must see ourselves as weak, sinful people who could be led astray. Because as soon as we think that we're not, then it'll be compromise, trajectory change, compromise, trajectory change, minimize. Do you think that? Do you feel that way? Some of you, I can, I know your heart rate's going up because you're thinking of your spouse as seducible. And I go, yep. Like you cannot take marriage for granted. You cannot presume on intimacy. You cannot presume on connection and fidelity. This is something that must be worked at, right? Because if I went back, say, 150 years ago, back before the Industrial Revolution, so maybe 200 years ago, when like 80% of people were farmers, it was really obviously destructive to society when households would break up and, um, and people would have to like... 
uh, go about that, their business that way because it was economically devastating to farms and households that there would be like broken marriages. Most of the time, um, women just end up getting trapped for financial reasons in abusive or adulterous relationships, not, not actually having access to a way out. But nowadays, actually society, um, from an economic perspective, is served by broken households. Biblically speaking, what God wants for society is still destroyed by broken households. But economically speaking, like in like the, the marketing-centric capitalist global economy, you are a better consumer of goods when you're divorced, when you have a broken household, when you're unhappy, when you're purchasing as a way of, um, of putting balm on your empty soul, when you are um, dissatisfied, when you're paying two mortgages and two electric bills and buying extra Christmas presents to atone for your, your brokenness. And you're, like, you actually serve the economic machine when you're unhappy and broken in your marriage. And so the whole of society is trying to thrust you in a position of being unhappy so that you will spend and purchase. So the marketing that you receive, the ads you receive on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on the, they're all designed to sow seeds of malcontent so that you will maybe spend money when you're unhappy or, or hopefully, eventually, train wreck your life so that you have to pay more money to more people and that the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. And I don't think that marketers, advertisers are evil, but I think they are trying to go like buy our stuff and you'll be happy. And when you're unhappy, then you tend to believe that more. This is most of the time how people find themselves in an adulterous position in the first place, is this reality that uh, I've grown cold or I'm unhappy or I feel trapped in my life. I don't feel cherished or pursued. Um, very often, um, men who pursue illicit relationships has something to do with like, a sense of entitlement uh, towards being uh, coddled or nurtured. Uh, they, they didn't want a wife, they wanted a mother. Um, and, and there's like this, why am I not being like dotted on? And there's like an entitlement thing that tends to often lead men in that direction. Women, it tends to be more like, I'm not feeling cherished or loved or considered, and here's someone who is doing that. Those are trends, not universals. But what's happening is the seeds of unhappiness push you outside the, the marital relationship and then under-promise, I mean over-promise, under-deliver. I don't know anybody who looked for happiness outside their marriage and cashed that check and it solved their problem. And I just want you to know that if the grass looks greener somewhere else, this is like the big lie. My bed smells so nice. I got these great pillows. My mattress is better than your wife's mattress. Sleep number, you know. I know you got your mattress at a big box store. I got a better one. Like there's, there's all these little things that you go, like, oh, when you're unhappy, when you're, when, you're, when you're distant and when you've had modeled for you infidelity, it just feels so natural, so normal to just continue the cycle. So you got to see yourself as seducible. And here's what Jesus says here in Matthew 5 to talk about this that I hope we, we, we hear some of this is Jesus says this, if in case you're tempted to think you're better than someone because you haven't actually crossed the line, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Okay, so what's Jesus getting at here? Is he saying that all sin, uh, like someone has a fleeting, lustful thought about not their spouse, that is the same as committing the physical act of adultery? No, that's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's getting at is all sin is equally damning. Meaning, don't anybody here think they're better than someone else just because they haven't sealed the deal yet on adultery. The fact that your heart longs for not what God gave you is evidence of your sense of entitlement and, and unhappiness and inability to receive wholeheartedly the blessings of God. And so all sin is equally damning, meaning God hates it all and he'll send you to hell for any of it. However, it's not all equally damaging, and we know this, right? If I broke into your house in the middle of the night, and just went up to you in bed, slapped you in the face, and said, boo! And then shot a gun off in the roof. And then I left. Just to scare you, you know? Uh, and then someone else came in, and you're all mad at me about it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was thinking about shooting it twice, and I only shot it once. You're welcome. I was considering shooting you in the foot, but I didn't. You're welcome. Uh, I was going to set a bomb off in your house and destroy you and your household, but I didn't. You're welcome. Like, you're not going to be like, oh, thank you for your self-restraint. You're going to be like, no, I still hate you. Um, I mean, I am glad you didn't blow me up, but I still hate you. Like, there's this reality. So if I go to my wife and I'm like, hey, I've not committed adultery, but I've been fantasizing about our neighbor a lot. You're welcome. She's not going to be like, oh, I'm so reassured at your self-restraint. I'm so grateful for your self-control. She's still gonna feel deeply hurt by that. She's still gonna feel the wounds of misplaced desire. She's still gonna hurt, like if we consider the effect, like this happens all the time when, especially you have, um, not that like a lot of women watch pornography, a lot more men watch pornography and they wanna go to their spouse, but I didn't actually do it. And I gotta say, if that's your defense, you're totally minimizing the pain you're creating in your relationship. You're totally minimizing even Jesus' words. If you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. And the wounds of that are similar, and the trust that's eroded is similar, and the difficulty of like self-image you're creating from the stab wounds that you've done is similar. And minimizing the lust of the heart is not a path to healing. We have probably, I think, like 20 or 30 guys at our church now who carry around flip phones um, because they believe this text. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. You could translate that, not translate, but apply it this way. It's better for you to lose your smartphone than have your whole body thrown into hell. It's better for you to carry around a flip phone and be a caveman than have your whole body thrown into hell. It's better for you if your coworker causes you to sin, quit your job because it's better for you to be unemployed than be thrown in hell. If your gym instructor causes you to sin, quit the gym because it's better for you to get unhealthy than be thrown into hell. If your neighbor causes you to sin, get out of your house because it's better for you to be homeless than be thrown into hell. The message here is 
deal with your sin as harshly as is necessary. The metaphor is meant to help you see the painful work of cutting off or choking off sinful tendencies is absolutely worth it. If your family history is causing you to sin, spend thousands and thousands of dollars in therapy getting whole because it's better for you to be poor than go to hell. If your marriage is on the rocks, refinance your house, pull cash out, and go to marriage counseling because it's better for you to be poor. Like, insert, what's the cost you're unwilling to pay to become sexually whole or sexually pure in your personal life or in your marriage? Because this is going, have you cut your hand off or pulled your eye out? Because if not, there's further you could go. Like I talk to folks who need marriage counseling, it's like, but it's 200 bucks, $2,000 for 10 sessions. I'm like, do you even know how much a divorce lawyer costs? That is a deal. Do you know how much it costs to split up a house? Do you know how much alimony is? Do you know how much these addictions cost? Do you know how much, like, like we are way too economically obsessed as a Christian church trying to get a deal on counseling, usually you get what you pay for. Go further. If you get, like, I see those guys carrying around flip phones at our, at our church, and I think that is the faith I want. That is the faith I want contagious in our church. People who are willing to be seriously inconvenienced for the sake of honoring the Lord in impurity. Now, so we talked about like the difficulty of this, like why for the Christian church it's such a big deal. And there's the pain it causes society and non-Christians sharing that pain. There's the pain it causes the spouse. There's the pain it causes the children. But there's a fourth degree of infidelity that adultery is that I think Christians bear the responsibility for. And we get this a picture in uh, Ephesians chapter five when Paul says this. Therefore, he's writing about marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This holding fast. So in Jesus' words about not committing less in your heart, he's going, you have this negative vision, which is don't commit adultery. I'm giving you this positive vision of only have eyes for your spouse. Work, labor, do the, do the tasks required to develop only having eyes for your spouse. So not just don't do the big adultery thing, but also the most positive vision I can give you is only have eyes and a heart for your spouse, period. And he's saying work towards this positive vision. Going back to like that Adam and Eve moment where there's Adam and there's only one woman on earth and he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the cherish, the adore, the receive, the gratitude. And we can go like, well, it was easy for Adam. It was Eve or the gorillas, you know? <laughs> like so, but there's, this, like, but there's this creational ideal that we're called to pursue. Only have eyes for your Spouse, only have desire for your spouse. And there's this theological picture that we've given here. Leave your father and mother to hold fast to your wife. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Meaning the referent or the sign is human marriage. But the reality, the thing that marriage is pointing you to is the realer or eternal marriage of God and his people. See, I tend to think that the gospel helps me understand my marriage, but in reality, my marriage ought to help me understand the gospel. Then you have this picture of a God who relentlessly 
pursues his people, wooing them, cherishing them, considering them, being preoccupied about them. Even we see that Jesus prays for us regularly, interceding for us on behalf of the Father, that you have this minded pursuit, affection, consideration that the God most high of the universe has for us, his bride, his people. And we ought to have marriages that reflect that reality. That people should see the, the, the narrow-mindedness with which I love and care about my wife and get a faithful picture of how Jesus cares for his bride. Not that you have some God who's like, man, I wish I would have picked the Canaanites. Man, I could have chose the Egyptians. But you have this God who loves the descendants of Abraham and cherishes them and loves them and at great cost to himself pursues, wins, and considers. See, when we are adulterous, we're not just undermining the integrity of our nuclear families, assaulting the created order, but we are also bearing false witness about what God is like to the unbelieving world. An aloof, disinterested husband and what it feels like to be the wife of an aloof, disinterested, or adulterous husband is literally what the world thinks God is like. He probably loves other people, but he doesn't love me. I'm sure he's interested in those people because they're all put together or pure or something, but he's not. Like I talk to my non-Christian friends, like, oh, I can't go to church. Like, God doesn't want me there. And I hope we see the weight that we are creating an image of a false God when we are falsely acting in our marriages. And so what I hope that we all take away from this text is that faithful missional witness requires wholehearted pursuit of marriage. And if wholehearted pursuit of your spouse is getting interfered with by ministry stuff, stop the ministry stuff. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Some of you might need to do this at church. Some of you might need to get rid of your smartphone. Some of you might need to switch gyms or, or drive a different way to work. Whatever it is, do the work required. Some of you need to internally deal with the fact that you're not struggling with pornography. You're a sex addict and you need to go to therapy. Do the expensive financial or emotional or relational work required to become a healthy whole person to become sexually, to, to do the work we need to do this. And I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is painless, but I am saying it is worth it and the Lord is blessed by it and the unbelieving world is blessed by it and your children be blessed by it. And there may be aspects of this, of repair that can't totally be done. like wounds that can't totally be healed, like memories you have that you now have in your marriage of past encounters or wounds you've already inflicted on your children. And I wanna say the first step to healing is confession and owning the pain caused. Then there's the work of repentance, of the healing of the mind, of doing the work. But if we wanna be a light in the darkness as a Christian people, if we can't be converted at the groin level, <laughs> What makes us think we can be converted at the head and heart level? The entire energy of secular society 
is sexual idolatry. And it is so tempting to believe we won't get swept up in that. But I have to say, I could, and you could, and we could. We are seducible. We are vulnerable. We must, must lean on the people of God for help and restoration. And we have to believe that God cares about this even more than we do. I'm gonna pray for us, and I know, and I, know I, just, I put a ton, I basically just assigned you all a whole bunch of homework. And I, I just want you to know that I don't know anybody who invested deeply, richly, and meaningfully in their sexual fidelity and thought that was a bad investment. The last point here, that if you don't really see yourself as cherished and pursued by God, you're not gonna maintain the energy required to do this healing. And as much as believing the gospel doesn't fully heal you, it is the only recognition that's gonna energize you that I am worth investing in my healing. Like you're valuable and God loves you and he wants you to invest in your growth and in your healing. And until you believe that God pursued you to the point of the death of his son and rose from the dead, until you believe that you're actually cherished to that degree by God, you're not gonna have the capacity to maintain the pain tolerance required to do the healing work and do the work of confession. But see and sense and believe that God loves you. Whether you have suffered because of other people's sexual sin or if you have suffered because of your own sexual sin, the work required to heal from this is tremendous. And God is saying, it is worth it. I purchased for you the possibility of doing it. And now he's saying, by my spirit, take steps of faith. Some of you need to have a time of confession. Some of you have been keeping a secret of something that your spouse has done in the name of honoring them. And it's actually preventing you from getting the help you need to heal from being sinned against. And I just wanna tell you, Restoration Church, that whatever steps of faith you take towards fidelity in this degree is 100% worth it. It will be painful, there will be scars, there will be wounds, but the Lord is blessed by it and he loves it. And if we are to be a light in the darkness, we must pursue sexual fidelity regardless of the cost. All right, I love you all, let me pray for you. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters here in this room. God, I know that as I speak is triggering to many. Those who have sinned because of their suffering, those who have suffered because of their sin or have suffered because of other people's sin. And God, I ask that you would help them see that you see their pain. God, I pray that generational patterns can be broken, that lives and trajectories can be altered, and that resources will be made available that will help people walk in faithfulness. And God, I pray that we all will see ourselves as cherished and pursued by you, that we might, in a fresh way, cherish and pursue our spouses too. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, 
Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.